and welcome to episode 44 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. Now, depending on who you speak to, the cask that you put your whiskey into to mature can contribute anything from 50 to more than 70% of its final flavour. Whatever figure you land on, it certainly plays a crucial role. One person who knows more about the impact of various forms of oak on whisky, and especially from sherry-influenced casks, is Stuart McPherson, until very recently Macallan's Master of Wood. Stuart has now retired from the role, but I caught up with him in the Scotch Malt Whisky Society's splendid members' room on Bath Street in Glasgow to find out all about his life's work in the world of wood, which goes all the way back to his school days in the late 1970s. Let's go back to the beginning. You started off as a cooper. How did you end up becoming a cooper, like in the late 1970s? It must have been a fairly strange choice even then. It's it's quite strange because uh, I actually wanted to be a PE teacher. I did a lot of athletics as a youngster. uh, And I had a relative who... Had their own cooperage and then and then they were actually kind of bought over and uh, worked for Robertson and Baxter as a kind of subcontractor. So I had a, an opportunity to work in a summer job, basically. Uh, and at that point, then I became quite fascinated about the actual industry itself. So you know, roll on. Uh, you know, I went back to school. And after a few months, I thought, you know, do I really want to kind of go back for another two years and then another four years at university? And basically, I had the opportunity for an apprenticeship. Uh, So that was starting September 1979. I I signed my trade papers uh, to start my apprenticeship in January 1980, at a time when the industry was quite buoyant. I mean, it soon quite quickly turned from that and, and there was a kind of huge kind of whiskey lakes that were developed and of course you know one of the first things you were doing was either shutting down production volumes uh, at distilleries and then you didn't have cooperages uh, you know so there was a huge cutback in, in coopers but thankfully you know still doing my apprenticeship uh, we then in 1982 moved from Glasgow down to Loch Winnoch uh, that was with the Clyde Cooperage Company, who were a subsidiary of Robertson and Baxter. And really it just kind of formed from there. Uh, spent a number of years on the tools, and then I went into uh, kind of the management side of it. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, I was you know promoted to assistant manager, and then early 2000 was the manager. So I was running Edrington's Cooperages, uh, both in the north and at that time was Loch Winnoch, but we were then transitioning into Addywell, which was, we were using that site that that North British belonged to because they were kind of, they were part of Edrington uh, along with Diageo, basically for their, their, their green spirit. Uh, and then in 2012, I was kind of asked did I want to support uh, the brands and become master of wood. And I think there was that kind of transition between, you know, the apprenticeships, coopering, looking at uh, the management side of it, and then passing that on as an education uh, from a brand perspective, and just to kind of 
the understanding of what wood can do to to spirit both in character and, and colour and flavours. Uh, and so that was 2012, I uh, supported the brand unit, and then 20, 2016, as I was saying, I kind of introduced an audit team into into Hareth to work with our cast suppliers and bodegas to really drive that focus and attention to casks that we were having made to our specifications uh, and, and that was the kind of journey so it's been fascinating this 43 years yeah. in the industry incredible was there a t- I mean you started in 79 you know I, I'm thinking about the society formed in 1983 and we're coming up for our 40th anniversary but there, there's been a lot of reflection on the industry at that time in 83 when some of the big name distilleries were closing down as you say there was the whiskey lakes whiskey locks uh, it was a pretty grim time then did, did, did you think at any point oh wait a minute what have i done you know maybe i should have stuck in at school or <laughs> university or, or did you ever feel that threat that wait a minute this industry is not in great shape maybe I've, I've, I've backed the wrong horse here probably more than once to be honest with you i mean i think yes there was always that i suppose the security that you were doing your apprenticeship and we, we had agreements that you would finish your apprenticeship but there was that that kind of nervousness and that concern that will I have a job once my apprenticeship's uh, finished and I, you know thankfully uh, I was one of the apprentices that was kept on I mean I think at that time you know we, we, we had a number of redundancies like you know the industry uh, and we were left with two time serve coopers and I think 14 apprentices um, um, and we then I think there was about three or four of us kept on as apprentices and that's what then started to build but I, I think I think the fact that we were a commercialised cooperage although we were part of uh, Roberts and Baxter we were then kind of able to uh, I suppose get other work from other companies who maybe didn't have cooperages attached to them that that kind of saw this kind of growth in the future. So, you know, there has been a couple of times, not just the fact of have I had I made the right decision, but the fact of is there something else I maybe want to do? But but in saying that, Richard, I think, uh, you know, if I look back over my 43 years, if I have ever envisaged in 1980 or 79 when I started having the opportunities that I've had would would never have envisaged these so I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunities to be honest with you it does seem to be an industry and I've been fortunate to speak to various people who've spent their whole careers in whiskey Dennis Malcolm's the most recent one that comes to mind up at mm-hmm. Grant uh, passing 60 years in the industry it does seem to be something about the whiskey world that once you're in it it, it keeps a hold of you I think more so from a production perspective, I I always say to people that you can be in this industry throughout your whole career and not know everything about it. I think every day is a school day. And I think now, uh, while I think globally whiskey is becoming a much more favourable drink, there's that intrigueness uh, about how it's developed to the stage that it's at. uh, And, you know, what what are the different characteristics? What's the right way to drink it? What's 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 the influences and impacts that uh, have created spirit? And I think that part of that brand education for me was about 
well, what does the wood side have to do with it? So, you know, while we were doing a lot of work with with research and development, uh, looking into what would be the perfect cask as such for us, it then allowed you to impart some of that kind of knowledge onto consumers about why they're drinking or tasting what they what they like, to be honest with you. You took up from George Espy. What did you learn from George? I think George was one of the industry's characters at the time. Uh, and so George had come in to kind of be the managing director of the Clyde Cooperage in... I think it was 1990, 1991, and it was really him who gave me my first opportunity to start to develop my career. Uh, obviously, George was very much involved with with Spain at that time, so I would I would say I kind of a lot I know an awful lot to George uh, in my career. Obviously, having that opportunity to learn a little bit more about Spain and and kind of what the, the processes were in there and, and obviously some of the suppliers. Uh, but, you know, h- uh, hugely thankful to, to, to George, really. Uh, so, And obviously you've worked throughout your career with both American and Spanish European oak. How is that kind of... How's your time been divided, I suppose, between working with the two forms of oak? I mean... Our, our kind of focus and emphasis was always on European oak. It still is, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think you know, understanding the the influence and impacts that the two different oak types have uh, has been has been a learning curve. Uh, I mean, obviously, we had suppliers who were uh, importing American oak. And then obviously manufacturing casks through that. So kind of latterly on in my career, it was about working with the, the scientific side of, of, of our business, looking at spirit development. Uh, and, and where did where did these wood types sit in part of our portfolio, uh, to be honest with you? Uh, but uh, I think the challenge is really more in the availability, uh, sorry, the variability okay. in European oak. Uh, rather than than American, uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, and I think it's you know once again pe- people or consumers generally when you're talking about American oak will assume that you're talking about ex bourbon barrels simply because they're more kind of readily available and used within the Scotch whisky industry. So when you were then explaining that no, this was uh, American oak that you were transporting to you know southern Spain air drying for a period of time and then doing that same process began to okay so what's the difference then between bourbon and then what's the difference between sherry and American oak and I think when you when you start to look at sherry and, and, and people you know in bodegas then predominantly a lot of these American or sorry a lot of the casks within the bodegas would be American oak because of the, the chemical structures of American oak or Quercus alba as opposed to the Quercus Roba or, or Petraea. Uh, I, I think, Richard, this became more of a kind of an art and a science, to be quite honest with you. know, People now are starting to look into, oh, we were certainly starting to, or have been looking into actual qualities of wood, looking at 
uh, uh, you know, maybe the, the kind of tannin contents of it uh, and, and being able to identify better European oak than, than other, maybe some other areas. I mean, you've been doing this a long time, but how far do you think we've come in terms of developing that understanding uh, compared to with your early days in the industry when you, you were working with European, Spanish oak, uh, compared with now where we've, we've invested so much science into trying try to understand more about it? It's came on immensely, to be honest with you. I think, you know, not, not only are people looking to, you know, it's kind of a value for money, you know, I'm, I'm spending this money, so how do I spend this money in the best possible way that it's going to mature my, you know, the liquid? Now, uh, I think there's part of that kind of understanding you're passing on to cask suppliers in Spain. You know, they, they believe that they're making a cask and uh, it's the best possible use for the spirit. You know, and it's a number of years, obviously, when you've, you've, you've laid down that cask in Spain, you've sherry seasoned it, or that's been done for you. Now, generally, it would be a number of years later in, in the spirit side of it before you're maybe then taking samples. So what we were looking at was, well, okay, I'm going to make a cask. This is, this is the specifications that we want to put into place. How's that going to develop liquid? So maybe taking sampling much earlier on in the maturation process, just to make sure that it is actually working. Uh, and I think that's the part of it that's became uh, much more interesting. Because what you really want to then say is, I'm going to purchase a cask or have a cask made that's going to develop it in that one maturation. I mean, you hear a lot about now about people finishing. I can understand where that is because, you know, if if previously the focus was to maybe fill into CX bourbon barrels and that consumer's style of, of spirit or their interpretation of what is meant to be better, then where where do they want to then finish or how do they then want to kind of move and develop that liquid? And that might be by putting them into different casks. And I think there's part of that that's, you know, wh what do you actually want to do? So, but for us, it was very much about this creating a vessel that in 12 years time, 15 years time, you can watch this spirit development coming through against your product portfolio, to be honest. But you mentioned the variability is, is the challenge more with Spanish oak. Did that variability challenge, did it become easier to deal with over the years or is it just something that's inherent with, with, with that form of wood? No, I think, it, I think it became easier. You know, what we started to look at was, uh, you know, not only logistically about where people were sourcing wood or suppliers were sourcing wood, but also the toasting temperatures. The biggest single influence to spirit development, in my opinion, is, is wood species and toasting temperatures. It goes hand in hand. I mean, I think people talk about it's, it's American oak and it's European oak. But, you know, through some of that research and development, you can start to not only influence the flavour characters, but also the colour as well. 
you know, especially if you're looking at natural colour products, you know, and how do you implement that? And I think one of the one of the benefits for us was that this is why we were then making casts to our own specifications rather than buying them off the shelf. And how have you seen that process develop over the years? That that kind of, you know, ordering a bespoke cask, the whole the whole process of of of, of building a cask, seasoning a cask. I mean, that's just taken off massively over the past, what, 20 years or so? Well, maybe, well, maybe not even as much as that, uh, to be honest. But I think what we... Well, I think one of the first, one of the first uh, kind of changes I, I looked at making was that having a much kind of stronger relationship and partnerships with uh, cask manufacturers. I think, you know, being able to uh, provide these kind of guarantees about longer term contracts. So, you know, allowing them to, to purchase wood in advance, allowing them to kind of air dry it, and then uh, looking at toasting temperatures has been one of, I suppose, the security factors for, for a lot of bodegas as well as, 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 as cast manufacturers. I think the challenge now you, uh, you know, globally, is uh, is for quality wood. I mean, obviously, China is very much kind of purchasing as much as they can get. We've got, I suppose, the challenges in Ukraine, who were a big uh, you know supplier of timber, in that where where's access to timber. So I think you know we've seen a lot of challenges in uh, certainly. Kind of Spain, uh, France, uh, probably you know in Easter countries. Although we weren't focusing there for timber, but certainly you know suppliers have had a challenge in, in sourcing good quality timber, uh, which is I think could be a challenge further on in terms of prices. You know the whole kind of the energy commodities. Uh, has it having now an impact on on cask prices? Yeah, I was going to ask about sustainability. I mean, obviously, it takes a long time to grow an oak tree, uh, but the industry seemed to ha- have reached a point where it, it, it could say it was a st- sustainable practice. But there are these external forces now, you know, co- coming into play, and also a growing market. So, in reality, what's your take on the sustainability of? Of the whole industry, there. I mean, I mean, they do. Uh, there is local fo- local government surveys which are done on a regular basis. From what we looked in in France and in Spain about sustainability, you know, it's the hot topic now. Uh, but which which is fantastic. But I think there's there's part of that realization that you know, for us to have forests in the future, we need to manage these forests correctly uh, and, and and that is you know managing them such a way that you are allowing these these oak saplings and, and forests to develop uh, I mean there is very stringent controls especially uh, especially in Europe about you know how you harvest logs so it's not about you know decimations of you know mass forests I think one of the challenges now is very much the forest fires, you know, that we see with you know global global warming and everything else. So, I think from a 
an industry perspective, there's maybe that concern about, well, to your very point about, you know, the, the length of time that it takes to grow uh, an oak tree, for example, that uh, is is that is that challenge with, with, with forest fires and everything else. But it, I, I haven't, you know, I've never, I haven't experienced the, the fact of, oh, well, we're, we're making all these casks uh, and, you know, the industry's growing. Uh, so is there, a, is there an issue you, later on? Uh, far from it, I think. Uh, I think the other thing is that, you know, while we looked at specific areas in sourcing oaks, you do have other parts in Europe uh, that you can use. I mean, that... I think it's quite interesting because w- when people talk about you know Spanish oak or, or French oak, there's no such thing as such you know because you'll have different species growing within certain areas. Uh, so I think it's it's about picking the right species more than the kind of geographical locations of of the timber itself. And I think you see that when you start to look at some of the uh, the structural makeups of of timber when when you're assessing them so what what are the what are the rewards of working with certain species of oak then i think it's 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 very much about that style flavor character that you're looking for you know if you, if, if for example you know for quercus alba and you are looking for something that's kind of lighter in color that kind of uh, sweeter vanilla citrus then that's a more of a driver towards Quercus alba, uh, or if you're looking for these, you know, sherry bombs and that kind of much more dried spice, chocolatey uh, flavours. Then it is more driven by by Quercus roba, for example. Uh, but it, it, it's then it's then utilising that that timber. So then you're looking at toasting temperatures about how you actually break down these chemical compounds within these species of timber to drive flavour and colour. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of the bodega cask, is is it even available anymore? Or is it, is it, is it desirable anymore? Or is, it, is the emphasis absolutely on creating your own casks and uh, building something to your own specifications? <laughs> That's an interesting one because we... They are, they are available, uh, you know, bodega casks. I think fewer of them than, than they were maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and, and there's obviously reasons for that in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the sherry industry and, you know, bodegas obviously having their financial challenges that... I think casks were then available uh, back in the day. If, from a, from a preference of, of spirit development, I would always be looking at a new cask. Uh, it, it offers so much more to, to that value, flavour and character. And I'm sure that we'll have a number of people who would probably dispute that fact or, or certainly get into that topic of conversation. But... You know, one of the reasons when you look at, you know, Excelera casks is that they're basically inert vessels. So, you know, they're 40, 50, 60 years old. Uh, so for us in the spirits industry, they're not going to be uh, as, let me see, 
impacting uh, f- from a from a spirit development perspective. So having having that lower percentage ABV wine. So if we take Oloroso, for example, between seventeen and twenty one, maybe say it's around about eighteen percent ABV, and you've got that in for a much shorter period of time, then while while that that young wine or that wine is then taking out some of these harshness uh, and astringency notes from the wood, it's obviously leaving a lot more for that new make spirit from a, uh, from a spirit perspective, to be honest. So I, we would always uh, you know, prefer to use a new cask rather than an older one. You know, you, you've probably got two or three fillings of, of quality out of that that new cask as opposed to kind of limited you know value in uh, in, in kind of older casks uh, as, as well so well it might be a follow-up question then but what would you think what would you say uh, with all your experience is what is like the main misconception about sherry casks you know what what frustrates you most I suppose in terms of people's Understanding or misunderstanding about the world of sherry cask maturation. I, I, I think people. I think there's very much this this kind of focus and understanding that it's the wine that's the driver to the quality of the product. It will have it will have an impact. I, I used to I used to kind of be asked that question. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say quite frequently, but I, there's a number of drivers. Uh, there's kind of probably it's kind of multi-layered. I would probably say there's five drivers in that. You know, the biggest single influence is wood species uh, and toasting temperatures. You then have the spirit itself. You've had the previous use of the cask. Uh, you've had the size of the cask, the location in 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 the warehouses as well. But I think you know that that con- that concept of well these these flavors are uh, are coming from the wines themselves uh is is the driver not at all i I mean yes if you were maybe looking at uh an ex-wine cask and you looked at maybe you were maybe looking for different you know options and opportunities i would probably swing towards uh, a sweeter wine so you know Maybe likes a Sauternes, uh, or in, in the sherry side of it, it would be more like PXs, Muscatels, where you've got that sh- high sugar content then interacting with new make spirit. Uh, but, you know, there's obviously reasons why you know, the vast majority of casks are maybe done in an Oloroso style, because it's the kind of backbone to a number of other wines that they're producing. Yeah. And what do you think about other forms of sherry being used for maturation, like a fino? Is is that just is it is it given as anything? Is it or is it more just uh, trying something different for the sake of it? I, I think I think it's 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 trying things different. To be quite honest with you, I mean generally, generally uh, finos and manzanillas would be an American oak because they don't want these harsh tannins impacting on that kind of young light wines. Uh, but there again, it's about it's about whether you are then having to manufacture a cast to your specifications 
to then use a, a kind of younger, lighter wines. I, I think it's great that people do want to kind of trial and experiment. I think it may be more of a kind of marketing story, to be quite honest with you. Sure. Uh, and after 43 years, you're, you've hung up your, 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 your boots uh, with Edrington and McAllen. Uh, what, what would you, how would you describe your own legacy within the company in terms of wood management? I mean, it's it's been a fantastic journey. I mean, and it's uh, an opportunity that I'm, you know, ever grateful for, for Edrington and McAllen for giving me that opportunity. But I think, you know, that, that kind of knowledge that uh, and experience that I've grown over these forty three years. I think, I think before casks were very much seen as these are just a vessel. I think, I think, you know, probably over the last fifteen years, there has been more of a, a focus uh, in the industry about the importance of, of casks and, and uh, you know how they play a, a significant role but uh, I think being able to you know, have the opportunity to impart some of that knowledge and understanding onto you know consumers just about you know the different styles and not just ours you know obviously uh, you know, McAllen as a brand had a specific style. I think the great thing about the Scotch whisky industry is we have a number of products which, uh, you know, allow us to talk about, you know, why something's been created or how they're, how the consumer's experiencing some of these, you know, flavours and characters and, and then drawing on the, the kind of wood side of it. So I, I see it as, you know, an industry which has has great potential and uh, just to to widen people's uh, horizons and knowledge. Uh, you know, we want to try and bring people along. I think there's always this perception that, and, it, and it's changing, thankfully, about you know one how do you drink spirits uh, and and that kind of the age demographic as well uh, about you know. It's an older person's drink, and it's great now that we are being able to uh, talk about it more openly and freely with with kind of younger consumers. Uh, and, and you know, what, what do they like? And you take them on a journey about you know, why something kind of lighter and fruitier to something that's darker and richer. And you've been obviously lucky to spend a lot of time in Jerez in the south of Spain. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to be there and we were just talking earlier about, you know, you really need to be there, you need to experience it to kind of feel that magic of the place, but, but also to appreciate that synergy between the worlds of sherry and scotch and get an understanding of how, how important they are together. But you've got, you've got to go there and experience it for yourself. It's, it's like everything, it's like, you know, part, part of my role before was, was very much about, you know, that, that education, that journey for, for the brand ambassadors that we had within our business. Because, you know, it's, it's easy for them to stand up and, and talk about the spirit itself. But how's that being created? And I think, you know, having an opportunity to visit cooperages, to see casts being made, you know, from scratch, basically, from planks of timber, to follow that through gives you a much more... Uh, wider appreciation 
of, of what's involved. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, acorn to glass or, you know, acorn to cask. And, you know, that, from that kind of felling of a, of a tree through the drying process, through the cask manufacturing, through the seasoning process, could take between five and six years. So when you're then looking at, let's say, a 12-year-old product, we were actually having to try and uh, kind of manage and forecast what we would need to purchase from a wood side. Uh, and, and, and that's then when you put it into reality about the time, the effort, the commitment that companies put into the whole development of liquid. But Jerez is a magical, it's a magical part of the city and our country in Spain. And I would always encourage people who, who if they have an interest and a passion in, in whiskey or even sherries, is to go and visit it. As we said earlier, it's not the easiest place to get to. But I think once you're there, you, you, you do become immersed, uh, I think, in the world of sherries, which for me are totally undervalued. I think, you know, there's a lot of work that could be done uh, for, for the image. And, and, and don't get me wrong, uh, Richard, I think that the, the Scotch whisky industry uh, has been a great driver in, in, in people, I think, beginning to kind of understand or wanting to learn, well, if it is about these different wines that have maybe you know, or casks that have been used with different wines. How has that impacted on the spirit? But more about what do these wines actually taste like? Yeah, set, set up the sherry with the whiskey. Do we comparative uh, tasting? Exactly. I, I remember. I remember going to Singapore once, and that was uh, doing a, a kind of t- a tasting, and it wasn't something I generally did. But I, I thought on this occasion it would be quite nice to kind of set up. Well, the focus was very much, and the spirits that we were, were tasting were very much kind of Oloroso driven, and and you know buying some bottles of Oloroso, which were quite hard to come by in Singapore, but then saying, okay, so if you can imagine that. Oloroso is a style of, of wine and then where you maybe get some of these flavour characteristics in the spirit that we're tasting and before I'd even got to the spirits they had drank the Oloroso and I, I thought well you, you maybe want to drink them in tandem just to kind of get this kind of feeling but I, I, I think it's it was just that fact of oh here's Oloroso we're going to drink this uh, and you know, it, for, it was wonderful to be honest with you so you must have had some moments in the course of uh, your career, Stuart, where you've just wanted to kind of pinch yourself and thought, my goodness, what am I doing here? What's going on here? It's something that's maybe just kind of blown your mind a wee bit. Anything in particular that stands out over the years? There's, there's, probably, there's probably numerous occasions, uh, you know, between you know, going into market and, and, and justifying non-aged uh, products and, and how about that was you know uh, influenced uh, you know, that style and character was influenced more on the wood rather than appreciating a number that's in a bottle but the one that always stands out for me I think Richard is the fact of you know working you know working with casts working with a, a natural product uh, <laughs> You're having that relationship with cast suppliers in, in bodegas in Spain uh, and then sitting in a bar 
in Herrera from Terra, uh, having a whiskey, knowing that the casks that these you know suppliers have made for us has then produced these wonderful liquids, and I think it's it's that whole kind of that journey that's a bit kind of that romanticism that says, you know, these these people. Uh, you know, have have put a lot of time, effort into developing casks through our own working relationships that have produced a product, and and I think that's the rewarding side of it. You know, it's not something that you've just created in the last few years. It, it has been literally a, a journey. Yeah, taking it back back home. It, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, you know, I think. Yeah, it's, you know, working with different suppliers and, and obviously, you know, they have a preference to whether they want to work with American oak or whether it's European oak. And, and just, yeah, I, I don't know, it seems quite strange in, in a way, but it, I think it, it's, that, it's that journey, it's that uh, kind of, I suppose, opportunity that people have been able to kind of sit down and discuss about what's what, what whiskies they like uh, as against to you know well these are these are more favorable to my palate than 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 not uh, i think i think the other thing that's been fantastic is obviously the the growth in the in, in, in the coopering industry uh, in scotland i mean you know go back to the, kind of the ter- early 80s when there was a huge uh, the whiskey lakes as we mentioned that you know the redundancies within the industry, the coopering industry, were, were phenomenal. Uh, and I think if you consider that probably in the mid seventies there was you know maybe something like a thousand to fifteen hundred coopers, you know, working in in the industry uh, in, in in Scotland, to to going into the early eighties and and maybe only being a hundred or so. So I think the great thing about the growth of Scotch uh, and you know the opening up of mothballed distilleries and the whole kind of growth of scotch uh, globally has meant that opportunity for mothballed distilleries to be opened up again uh, to uh, for, for cooperages to to start uh, employing apprentices again and I think now although it, it'll never get back to the numbers that we were at it, it, it is very much kind of growing and developing and I think we're probably you know 250 between 250 and 300 now so it's a much better place and I think you know having a craft and the whole heritage and history about coopering is phenomenal now that it's beginning to 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 grow and uh be recognized again so you're glad you took on that summer job (laughs) yeah when you look back at it um yeah exactly you know uh but yeah Ever, ever grateful. Good stuff. And uh, are you hanging up the coopering tools for good? Or what, what, what's next for you, Stuart? Well, I think probably a lot of people said, you know, when I was appointed, uh, you know, master of wood for McAllen, I think a lot of my colleagues probably said I was more of a lump of wood uh, rather than a master. But I, I kind of, I, I still have tools. I still have my tools. I think there's probably more dust on them than anything else now. But, you know, there is times where I think, you know, it, it's, uh, I'd quite like to go back to, to working in the tools, but uh, maybe not to the effort that, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, previously. But uh, it, it's one of these crafts, I think, that you know you, you do it is hard and it is physical, and, and things have changed within the industry through you know automation and you know new designs uh, of of machinery. But I I, I I really do that think that you you. you you manufacture a cask or, or generally in Scotland it's repairing casks but you know to then uh, you know know that that's filled with a liquid that's that's going to develop and you know in many years to come become a bottle that consumers you know going to drink and hopefully enjoy is is is, is quite you know welcoming uh, to be honest but uh, actually going back and working in the tools no I'm afraid that was that was yeah. gone a long time ago but will you stick uh, in the industry in, in some shape form or shape or any any plans yeah I think so I you know I think I would uh, you know I think it's very difficult to walk away uh, spending a lifetime in in the Scotch whisky industry and and not be involved so I you know I will be in, in some shape or form whether that's you know helping companies to uh, understand maybe what they're trying to do as a business and grow and develop and you know where uh, some of the work that we did before and 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 helping them understand about you know, maybe investments and, and and suppliers and everything else but i i don't think you i don't think you ever walk away from 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 this industry to be quite honest with you and if i can help others then uh, that would be that would be a great honor that's Stuart McPherson, former Master of Wood at the Macallan, reflecting on a lifetime's work with whisky casks and what might be in store for the future. You can read more about Stuart in the September issue of Unfiltered, the members' magazine of the Scotch Malt Whisky Society, which you can find at smws.com. As always, there's a host of other fascinating whisky knowledge and entertainment in there for members of the SMWS and if you haven't signed up yet, what are you waiting for? That's it for this episode of Whiskey Talk. Until the next time, cheers.